Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. David Ricardo's roots were in Europe's population of Spanish and Portuguese Jews who had fled the Inquisition. Ricardo's father, Abraham Ricardo, worked on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, but then moved the family to London. The young Ricardo was forced to cut these roots when he fell in love with Priscilla Ann Wilkinson, a Quaker who lived next door, because his family disapproved of the match. Ricardo subsequently became estranged from his father and was disinherited. He must surely have known that these or similar consequences would follow from his decision to put love ahead of family loyalty, given his father's imperious manner. That Ricardo did so anyway is perfect evidence of an independent streak that would mark his political economy. Despite being set adrift from his family, Ricardo was talented enough to build a substantial fortune from the money market. In fact, Ricardo was so successful that by 1815 he semi-retired, at age 42, to Gatcom Park, currently the home of Princess Anne. It was in this setting of financial security that Ricardo began to seriously engage in political economy. A few years earlier, he had intervened into the bullion controversy and achieved wide recognition for his work, attacking the Bank of England as recklessly issuing paper money for the sake of profit. In the text under study today, Ricardo's target was even larger and more politically controversial, protection to agriculture. In early 19th century Britain, landed wealth predominated politically and economically. With the Industrial Revolution still some decades away, agricultural production had enjoyed not only favourable legislation, owing to the fact that landlords held seats on both sides of Parliament, but also from Napoleon's attempted blockade of British trade. Restricted imports of food had seen relatively unproductive land brought under cultivation, and domestic producers were perceived to be unable to compete with their foreign rivals. Under such conditions, the question was, should protection be continued? Ricardo's answer is contained in the title of his pamphlet, an essay on the influence of a low price of corn on the profits of stock, showing the inexpediency of restrictions on importation. Its publication was timed to coincide with debate on these issues in the House of Commons. Here is Terry Peach. To put it in context, I mean, we're talking about 1815. As the war with Napoleon's drawing to a close, there had been a corn law in force before the Napoleonic War, which prevented free import of corn until the price reached a certain nominal level, which was specified in the Act. But as a result of the inflation that had occurred during the Napoleonic Wars, landlords, landowners recognised that if trade was permitted after the war, the home market would be swamped by much cheaper foreign corn, wheat. And so they wanted a revision to the old law, taking into account the inflation, so specifying a much higher nominal price. And this is what Ricardo was opposing. So the essay was conceived as a response to these political developments. It wasn't written as some kind of abstract theoretical text. Ricardo's text was, in other words, a polemical intervention into a topical debate. But Ricardo made this intervention using the so-called theory of differential rent. And this is the key argument that has attracted historians of economic thought, because it appears to articulate the principle of diminishing returns. What did Ricardo say? Ricardo began by approving of Malthus's definition of rent. Rent was used in the period to refer to payments made to landlords by capitalist farmers for the right to use land as a factor of production. Leases were commonly for long periods of time, and landlords and tenants often had established and at times close relationships. In a typical move, 
Ricardo defined rent in abstract terms. It was the residual remaining after costs of production had been met, where these costs included normal profits. It followed that when a farm's produce was only enough to meet costs and profits, rent must be zero. With this analytical swiftness, Ricardo had brought one of his society's most important institutions under the theorist's cold gaze. His next step was to discover the principles that determined rent. Ricardo imagined a nation where 300 units of wheat were produced using 200 units of capital, yielding profits of 100 units, or 50%. He then imagined that production needed to be increased to feed a growing population, requiring that less fertile land be cultivated. On this second-rate land, producing 300 units of wheat required 210 units of capital, such that profits fell to 43%. To reiterate, there are now two grades of land under cultivation, the prime land that yields profits of 50% and the second-rate land that yields profits of 43%. In making this claim, Ricardo was treating land not as a source of nature's bounty, as it tended to be thought of by previous writers, but as a more or less efficient factor of production. Ricardo then described production on third-rate land, requiring 220 units of capital to produce the same 300 units of wheat. Profits on this land fell to 36%, and Ricardo was now ready to make his move. It relied on his definition of rent as the residual that remained after costs and normal profits had been paid. If the capitalist farmer on the third-rate land was prepared to accept profits of 36%, then it was clear that the farmer on the first-rate land who received profits of 50% was being paid above the odds. It followed that the landlord who leased this excellent factor of production was not pricing it correctly. The landlord could extract that quantity of rent from the farmer that would reduce profits down to 36% and leave them with what was evidently an acceptable rate of profits for capital. Likewise, the landlord who owned the second-rate land could extract rent from their tenant farmer until they, too, were left with the prevailing rate of profits. In this way, rent was a differential. It was created by the fact that different pieces of land exhibited different levels of fertility. The implication was that as a society grew in wealth and population, it would become increasingly difficult to raise the food supply as increasingly poorer lands were brought under cultivation. This would depress the level of profits as all farmers were brought to a level by the extraction of rent, which kept increasing as the process went on. This was the sharp edge of Ricardo's argument, because it implied that landlords won as society lost, and they won not because of their own industry or skill, but because they were the passive owners of a limited resource that was required by the industrious and active class to feed the nation. Terry Peach again. One thing that is striking about the essay as Ricardo develops these arguments is his declaration that it is the interests of the landlord class that are opposed to the interests of all other classes in the community. This marked, of course, a radical break with the position articulated by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, for whom it is the interests of merchants, manufacturers, that are taken as being opposed to the interests of all other classes. So Ricardo had completely rewritten the relationship between the different classes. His position on landlords wasn't based on personal animosity, he was an enemy only to the extent that landlords or landowners used their dominant position in Parliament to pursue their own economic ends, imposing the new Corn Law, to the detriment, as Ricardo saw it, of uh, the social majority. In Ricardo's society, 
These were dangerous thoughts. The French Revolution had dragged Britain into more than 20 years of conflict as the Republic gave way to Napoleon's ambition, obliging the British state to fight wars without and to contain radical agitation within. Patriotism had been a prime value used by the British state to secure its legitimacy, and different groups had claimed to have acted patriotically throughout the course of the war, including landholders who had borne the brunt of the new taxes required to fund the war. Ricardo's analysis produced a directly contrary finding, that the landlords had benefited enormously from the high price of food during the war, and with or without war, landlords always enjoyed an enormous slice of the nation's revenue that they played no part in creating. The case for free trade in corn was clear. Importing cheap corn from foreign nations would allow capital employed on unproductive land to be withdrawn and allocated to a more profitable use, and increased profits for capitalists would allow them to employ more workers. In other words, both capitalists and workers would benefit from free trade, isolating landlords as the minority class interest that would suffer. What had begun as an austere analytical exercise had ended up as an open attack on the most important class in the society. Then, as now, the ambitions of economics to achieve neutral scientific knowledge can be frustrated by the controversial nature of its findings. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought, written and spoken by me, Dr Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Keith Tribe and Terry Peach. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyabi.